Isaiah, the fifth chapter, if you will. And we have prepared the remainder of the fifth and the sixth chapter of Isaiah, which is a wonderful chapter. So, we'll get right into it. We're in the fifth chapter, and we got down to verse uh, uh, 20, and it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we talked about in our last lesson, <clears throat> the insensibility of people, the moral insensibility. They call it one thing when it's something else. There are six woes that we find in this fifth chapter. If you look at verse 8, you have woe unto them that join house to house and that lay field to field. First, The first woe was against covetousness. That's verse 8. The second woe, verse 11, that rise up early in the morning, that they follow strong drink, that continue until night, until wine inflame them. The second woe, that's the second one, is against fleshly lust. And the third one was in uh, verse 18, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. And this third woe was against the mockers. It says in verse 19 that say, let him make speed and haste his work, hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the holy, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. In other words, they were mocking God that he wasn't doing anything about it. And then the one we just quoted in verse 20, that call evil good and good evil, and that is a war against moral, moral insensibility. And the fifth one we'll pick up in verse 21. And notice it says in verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And this fifth woe is against conceit. Those who think themselves to be wise. Those that are blinded to the truth. Those that are self-deceived. You know, uh, the Bible says if a man thinks himself to be uh, something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. You know, I, I'd rather be deceived. I don't want to be deceived in the first place, but I'd rather be deceived by someone else than myself. Because at least I have someone on the outside trying to do the work instead of me on the inside doing it myself. So, this is against conceit. And then if you look at verse, 20, verse 22, this is the sixth woe, and it's against lawlessness and it's against corrupt judges and verse 22 says woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him so they pervert judgment because of being uh, influenced with alcohol they can't think straight and they don't care once they get in that shape. So it's against lawlessness. And it's against corrupt judges. Men of authority that are drinking and perverting the judgment of what is good and right. You know, it's bad enough when the skid rope type of people uh, do the things they do. But it's worse when men of authority that are supposed to uh, mete out justice and judgment. And they corrupt themselves and others by what they do. And it says in verse uh, 23, which justify the wicked for reward. They're taking bribes and take away the righteousness of the righteous 
from him so that the, the righteous man uh, has no chance in the courts of law. And that's a corrupt situation. And in verses 24 through the remainder of the chapter, we have this subject. And we want to get into the sixth chapter, so we'll kind of brief over this. In the 24th verse through the 30th verse, we have Jehovah's anger against such, and the invader uh, that will come is announced. So verse 24, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their roots shall be as rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have, look, cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. When people cast away the word of God, and despise the word of God, then they're going to find themselves in the... Uh, Situation where God's fire devoureth the stubble and flame consumeth the chaff. They're going to find the judgment of God coming. Look at verse 25. It says, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people. Why? They've disregarded His word. They've disregarded His law. They will not listen to what He says or do what He says. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. See, God's hand of judgment came. This probably refers to the earthquake that you find in Zechariah 14:5 and Amos 1, verse 1. It speaks of a great earthquake in those days. But even in spite of the judgment that he brought, and the hills did tremble, and all of the, uh, in the middle of this verse, and then the last part says, that uh, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In the midst of God's anger, what is he saying? In the midst of his anger, he's still stretching out his hands. He's still hoping they will repent. You know, some people believe that when God judges them, that he's, He's uh, uh, cruel to them. But God's anger is in order that we see that we need to repent and turn from our wickedness. If we find God's chastening hand as His children, we need to see that we need to repent and return from our wickedness. Sometimes people do not realize that when, when, when uh, things are really going bad and when you feel that really you're out of the will of God and God is... Uh, chastening you as His people, that He's doing so in order that you'll have time. His, his hand, look at this, His hand is stretched out still. What does that mean? He wants you to return. His hand is stretched out still in the midst of it. Remember when Jonah went to preach to the city of Nineveh? And, and the message was this, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Forty days is the time of testing. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Well, his message was not repentance. But the king and all the people, the king that sat on the throne says, let's repent and let's turn to God. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And they fasted and they prayed and said, they, what was his word? Who can tell if God will turn from his fierce anger? of His wrath, and spare the city. And God saw what they did, and He did spare them. And of course, it made, it made old Jonah mad, because his message didn't come true. 
It really did. It got to under skin. He went out there with a message of judgment, and God didn't judge. God saved them all. God spared them all. And so Jonah was rather embarrassed. Instead of being happy that he got a message through, and they were revived, and that people turned to God, he thought, well, now my message of judgment didn't work, and now I'm made a fool of. And he really wasn't, because he was successful. God's purpose behind it all was that they would repent. And Jonah, of course, couldn't see that looking through the eyes of flesh and uh, eyes of human nature. If God's going to judge, He ought to judge, we think. Well, if God's going to judge, it's His business if He wants to bring back that judgment and give you a chance to live. And that's what He did to them. And His hand is stretched out still. Look at verse 26. Uh, And He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. He'll send His message to them. He'll send an email to them. And behold, they shall come with speed speed swiftly. That's what he did. The word hiss means like he would radio them. Like he would send a telephone call to them. Like he would call the nations. And God is able to do that without the modern equipment. And so he, he called them against his people. In other words, he said he would lift up an instant to the nations from far. A banner. God is going to rally all hostile nations to carry out His judgments. We wonder why that God would use wicked nations and hostile nations to judge His people. And yet this was a means that God had at His disposal because He can do anything He wants to do. Remember back in the Old Testament, Abraham went down into Egypt and he got in trouble and he lied about Sarah and said, This is uh, my sister. Of course, she was, but she was also his wife, and that should have taken the first... You know, it was a half-truth, wasn't it? And a half-truth was really a lie. And so Abraham was rebuked by the, the Pharaoh, the Elimelech, I believe, in that particular instance. And we find that in that case, what happened, he says, Why didn't you tell us the truth about Sarah? Why did you say? Why didn't you tell us she's your wife? He said, We might have sinned against God and taken her to our, uh, ourselves. And so, sometimes God's people have to be rebuked by those in the world. And that's what happened to Abraham. That's what was happening here. Only this was judgment from these nations. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come uh, with a speed swiftly. Now look at this. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. They would never tire on the long marches, and they would be fully equipped, and they would come in with force. It says in verse 28, Whose arrows are sharp, and their bows bent. The bent bows are ready for battle. We're told that it took two men to bend it for stringing. They were so strong of bows that some of the enemy... Some of the hostile nations had that it took two men to bend the bow for stringing. So we find that their bows are bent, they're ready for battle. Their horses' hoofs shall be counted like a flint. They were able to go in the rocky places and known for being able to endure. And their wheels like a whirlwind. The wheels of their chariots. So they, were, they would come in with such force and such accuracy against God's people to judge them for their sins. Those woes that we pointed out. For the sin of covetousness, for the sin of fleshly lust, for the sin of, of being mockers of God, for the sin of insensibility, moral insensibility, for the sin against 
conceit, they were conceited in the sin against lawlessness that we've already mentioned. And he would bring judgment. I wonder, let's just stop a moment. If God would do that for his earthly chosen people because of their rebellion and because of their backslidings, what do you th- how do you think you and I can get off so lightly so some, some much of the time? Do you, do you actually expect to backslide, get away from God, go out and live in the world, serve the flesh and covetousness and, the, and lawlessness and these other things, and expect God not to chasten you? That's not what God's Word says. The Bible says that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So he scourges us, he chastens us. He makes us understand that we, when we're away and have a broken fellowship with God, He wants us to return. And notice that last part of verse 25 again. But His hand is stretched out still. In the midst of all that God does, He's, he's still welcoming people to repent. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Now then in verse 29 it says, Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Look at this. The Assyrian army was likened to roaring a roaring and ferocious lion. And both of these verses, 29 and 30, show us that. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. That's in their strength. They shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safe. And none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. In other words, a day of darkness for Israel, and he is also uh, anticipating a captivity that would come to them. A captivity. They would go into Babylonian captivity, and they would suffer there for many years in bondage. Now then, let's look at the sixth chapter. I've always loved this sixth chapter of Isaiah. We're going to see there's several ways to divide it. First of all, I'll give you a couple of simple ways, and then we'll go with one that has four different points instead of three. But if you want to divide it and say the glory, verses 1 through 4, and the vessel of honor prepared, that would be Isaiah, verses 5 and seven, five through 7, and then the commission he received, verses 8 through 13. So the glory and the vessel of honor prepared, and then the commission. You might put it the glory and the vessel and the commission. That's what you find. Then there's another way. The vision, number one. The cleansing and the commission. That's a simple way to put it. But I want to give you four things that we will deal with. It's a little more detailed outline. And there's going to be a glorious vision. We'll emphasize that. A glorious vision, verses 1 through 4. An humbling confession, verse 5 where Isaiah confesses, a great salvation, verses 6 and 7, and then a definite commission, verses 8 through 13. And as we read verses 1 through 4, we'll come back and talk about these things. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. By the way, before we read any further, Uzziah means the power of Jehovah. Uzziah. Now, Uzziah 
died as a leper. He died as a leper because he went into the house of God. He was king and he took the office of the priest. And he went into the house of God and offered up sacrifices which it was not his business to do. You know, you better do what God's called you to do and not what someone else is supposed to do. He was king over all of Israel. And yet, he presumed to go in and offer up the sacrifices. For Let's read it. Turn back in the book of Second uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And I'll just read about uh, the part where he sinned against God. Second uh, Chronicles, chapter 26, if you will. We'll read verse 16. And you'll find the previous verses in Second Chronicles 26 speak of Uzziah's prosperity and all that God did for him. And as long as he followed the Lord, it says God made him to prosper. That's in verse 5. As long as he, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Now look, but at verse 16 it says, it says, but when he was strong, when he was strong, this is Second Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. The priest must be the only one that would do this. And of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. Now look. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king. These priests withstood the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth. The king got mad. Thought, well, I'm king. I can do what I want to. No, you can't. In the things of God, you do what God directs you to do. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. God smote him with leprosy. And then it says in verse 20, And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, he himself hasted also to go out. In other words, they didn't have to throw him out. He was ready to get out. Because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death. And dwelt in a several house. Separate house means. And, it's, and it says this. Being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Alright, back in our text. Uzziah, in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1 I should say. In the year that King Uzziah died, he says... I saw also the Lord. By the way, you, uh, Isaiah had his eyes upon an earthly king when he should have been looking at a heavenly king. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, boy, that was a stroke to Isaiah. He had his eyes on him. But he says, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. God says, now I'm going to get your eyes turned in the right direction. You, uh, Isaiah, I want you to look now. Isaiah had been prophet a long time. But now he's really going to be, uh, what would we call it, dedicated or consecrated or, or uh, commissioned. And he's really going to be the prophet God wants him to be. See, it's not enough to be a prophet by profession. 
It needs you need to be a prophet by experience and by possession. By the way, it's not enough to be a preacher by profession either. You have to be a preacher by experience and by possession. And so here he he really began to be the prophet God wanted him to be. But it was a tough situation. He had to get his eyes off the king. King Uzziah, and he had to get his eyes upon the throne. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled his temple. The skirts thereof, the train of the Lord, filled the temple. Above it stood seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. You know, I, I get sidetracked a lot. I was going to read all four verses, and there's so many rich things as I go along. I, I just hate not to tell you before I get through reading, because I don't always time it just right. But in this instance, I want you to notice these seraphim. Each one had six wings with twain. Look at this. With twain he covered his face. And with twain, two wings, he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. There was activity. You know what it indicates to me? When you cover your face, this is this is humiliating, and this is also an act of uh, uh, being submissive to God. In other words, worship. And if you do the same thing with twain, you cover your feet. It, it would be indicative of worship too. And then with two wings, they would fly. So it shows me first that you worship God, and then you serve God. There's always worship before there's activity. Jesus said this, and you never find it in the reverse. He says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. It is written, Jesus said, and Him only shalt thou serve. So what do you do first? You put God first in your heart, and you worship Him, and then you're capable of serving Him. Don't ever get those turned around. Don't ever try to serve God and then worship Him. We've got a lot of people serving God, so to speak, all over the world. They say, I'm serving God. but Put Him first. Put him first, and then you're ready to serve. Uh, serve. And you never find these two things in reverse. And so uh, it says, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. So in this glorious vision, this is what Uzziah saw. He says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, that's verse 1, his train filled his temple, above it stood the seraphims, that's above the throne. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory is the fullness of the whole earth. Holy, holy, holy. You have the active, searching, burning holiness of God. And it says, And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. The, the post of the door, the door of the thresholds, you have a marginal reference. The whole thing began to shake. The door, the post of the door, uh, moved at the voice. God's voice is powerful. You find in the book of, uh, in the Psalms, where it speaks of the, God's voice being powerful. And you find in the book of Revelation the power of God's voice. In Revelation chapter 1, let's see if we can find it. Revelation chapter 1. In verse 15 it says, His feet were likened to fine brass as if they burn in a furnace. Now listen. And his, the, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Have you ever been on the ocean when it was calm and quiet and peaceful? 
And have you ever been on the ocean when it was a storm and when the waters were raging? And I'll tell you, you can hear the sound of many waters. You can hear the sound. And His voice is the sound of many waters. And the, back in Isaiah, in our text, it says, And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and, with a, and the house was filled with smoke. And remember the smoke of, of Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the law? Let's see if we can find it. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. We say where there's smoke, there's what? Fire. Right? And He descended upon it in fire, and, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Quaked greatly. So Moses had that experience too, didn't he? The children of Israel had had that experience before. Now Isaiah is having that experience. And then we find in verses 5 through 7, we have, well, verse 5 rather, by itself, we have an humbling confession. We had a glorious vision in verses 1 through 4. In verse 5, we have an humbling confession. In verses 6 and 7, we have a great salvation. And in verses 8 through 13, we have a definite commission that Isaiah receives after he's cleansed and after his salvation, so to speak, takes place. Not that he was not saved uh, as far as his soul is concerned, but the salvation from his situation to bring him into a closer relationship to God. These first four verses, I think we ought to top that off before we get to verse 5. We talked about a glorious vision. And this vision was a divine divine majesty. If you read those four verses and you have them before you, you can see the divine majesty of God Almighty. You can see also the date is fixed in memory. It's in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah had this vision. It was a vision of the sublimity of God. And we have the seraphs and their song. And they're crying, holy, holy, holy. Thirty times Isaiah speaks of Jehovah as the Holy One. And it's a sense of God's very presence. It's a vision of God's holiness. And there are other visions of God's holiness in the Bible. This was one, and one very special one. Remember Job, after all of the experiences of Job, and he would answer his friends, and he had a word for them every time. And God gave him wisdom enough to answer them. But then when he met the Lord, and remember Job was a righteous man, one that feared God and eschewed or shunned evil. Job was a man that uh, tried to serve God. In fact, God himself says there's none like him in all the earth when Satan came to tempt him. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil desired to, to make an example of Job and tried everything in the world. He took all of his wealth, all of his uh, possessions. He took his children God permitted it that there would be seven sons and three daughters killed. He took all of his animals, all of his possessions that he had. And his wife turned around and said, curse God and die. He was smitten from the top of his head to the sole of his feet with sore boils. And he went out to a pottery, broken piece of pottery and took the potsherd or broken pieces of pottery to scrape himself with all. Talk about a pitiful condition. And yet, when he saw God, he says, I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So when he saw the Lord, it changed his mind about things. 
Look back in the, the book of uh, Exodus where you find uh, Moses at the burning bush. Chapter 3 of Exodus. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mount of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I now, I will now turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burnt. Here's a bush that's an old dry bush that's just burning like everything and, and it, the fire doesn't consume it. It's a miracle that the bush was not burned. You take a, a bush out there and you set the thing afire, it's going to burn up. But the miracle was it didn't burn. It was on fire. And he said, I'm going to turn aside and see why this is this way. And when, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. This was God's presence there, and I believe Moses knew it and felt it. He said, Moreover, uh, moreover he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He was afraid to look upon that sight of God's presence. By the way, I want you to notice what uh, God said to Moses. He says, I'm the God of what? I'm the God of thy father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been dead a long time. But he was their God. And you remember, Jesus used this to prove to the Sadducees that all the dead that have gone on to be with the Lord are living with God. Remember, the Sadducees says, well, they didn't believe it about this question Jesus about the resurrection. And Jesus said, you do greatly err, not knowing the Scriptures, that's one thing, nor the power of God. They didn't know the power of God that in heaven were as the angels of God, were neither married nor given in marriage. But they didn't know the Scriptures because when God said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He says, God is not the God of what? The dead, but of the living. He was indicating that those that were gone on were living with God. And that's what Jesus used in His argument against the Sadducees. And so, now let's get back to our text in uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. So we find that in this glorious vision, it was not only divine majesty and a vision of the sublimity of God and the voice of God speaking out. It was the vision of God's holiness and the visions we've already referred to for Job and for Moses as well. But look in verse 5. After Isaiah had seen this vision... There was an humbling confession. Notice in verse 5 it says, Then said I, what did Isaiah do in response? Woe is me, for I am undone. Usually it's God that pronounces the woes. But Isaiah was so touched with this vision that he pronounced the woe upon himself. Sometimes you and I can come to a situation before God's presence that we can say, I'm, I Really, I'm not too well off. And, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He didn't say, I'm in the midst of a crooked and a bunch of people that do not care and that have turned their backs on you. And they had. But he started at home. He says, It's me first. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the more we see God's holiness, 
the more we get a vision of God's, a glorious vision of God, the more we see God to be who is He is, and the seraphim round about the throne crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. I believe this indicates the Trinity as well. Holy, Holy, Holy. And then think of God's holiness. And we see that kind of a vision. He saw His throne and the train, His train filled the temple and these seraphims worshiping God and crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then at the voice of Him that uh, was upon the throne, the whole, it says the, the post of the door moved at the voice of Him uh, that cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And when we see that kind of a vision, when we see God in His glory, and we can see God through Christ and in the New Testament and in the Word of God, we can see God in that way. He has given us a revelation of Himself. You read Revelation chapter 1 of the glorious majesty of Christ. And then you and I come to the place that we think ourselves to be something not so. Then we come to the place that we say, Woe is me, for I'm undone. You know, we're very small little creatures upon this earth. We're just like little grains of sand down here compared to the universe, and compared to God. And yet we have a soul and a spirit, and God has made us very special. And He deals with us in such a way that we, can, that we need to realize that in spite of the greatness of God, He still takes thought of us, and He still has us in view. Isn't that a miracle in itself that God would condescend in His grace to look down upon us? That God would care for us and He didn't provide salvation for angels that, that had fallen from heaven, but He did for man, for men that have sinned? No wonder Isaiah said, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now most of us, when something happens uh, that God's judgment comes, we start blaming other people. Isaiah had gotten back, uh, past this stage of blaming someone else for a situation. When you really get into the presence of God, you're going to think yourself not to be very much. And he didn't think himself to be very much. And that's why he said, I'm undone. And I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm sure he wasn't any worse than anyone else. But he didn't compare himself to someone else, by the way. When we start comparing ourselves with others and trying to justify ourselves in that way, we can go anywhere we want to with it, can't we? We can pick a, uh, we can pick a fairly good example of the worst there is in the world, can't we? It's evident that someone is better than someone else. I mean, you know, you just look around and find the sorriest guy in the world and say, well, you know, I'm just as good as he is. Well, that's not much, is it? <laughs> If you raise the standard a little and come to a fellow's little more of a character and say, well, you know, I'm as good as that fellow. Well, you're gaining a little bit, maybe. But none of us are good. So we come to the place that we start comparing ourselves with one another. And the Bible tells us that if we do so, we're not wise. But So the thing about it is we need to see what God thinks about it. And when we do, we look at ourselves. You know, I was thinking about the church and about the Lord this morning, yesterday as us last night in the middle of the night continuing to prepare my, prepare my sermon on Calvary. And I was thinking, you know, we're down here upon this earth. Uh, think of all the ministries of each and every one of us. And I thought, of, well, I've been preaching in the 
church 38 years. And we came out here with nothing. Started the church up in an old building uptown. And uh, had to borrow money to get it started. And borrow money to get my house built. And, and I was deeply in debt. And the Lord brought us through it all. And I thought, well, but still, whatever you do, you're still just a little spot. And it doesn't make any difference. And you think some of these, and then I was in thoughts run across my mind about some of the great preachers that I've known, and they got to great heights, but then I saw some of them fall. They have feet of clay too, don't they? So you can see that, that when we compare ourselves and we see ourselves in the light of God's Word, we need to realize that His salvation is great. His pardon for us is great. In verse 6, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Look at that. The great salvation that he brought to Isaiah. Pardon. Thy sin is covered. Verse 6. It's covered by the atoning blood. Thy, uh, I want to read verse 7. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. There's purity. The iniquity is taken away. Not only is there pardon, your sin is covered, but there's, it's taken away. The very cause, thine iniquity is taken away, means the very cause of sin is dealt with. It's not only sin itself, but the very cause of it. And it, the power that did this, it says, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. God has the power to take that live coal from off the altar. And when that touches your lips, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the things of the altar, the substitutionary work of Christ. That's the altar. By the way, we're not talking about altars in houses or places that people have talked about. The altar is Christ's sacrifice. And and God takes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, from that altar and the work of Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ, and applies it to the troubled and unclean soul and we're made clean. It's taken from off of that altar of sacrifice where Jesus died. And here it's symbolical of that very thing that Isaiah that happened to Isaiah. Having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. You know, in the Old Testament they had the altar, the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made. And the blood was shed, and they took the blood in the basin, and the sacrifice was burned up, and they took of that lamb that was slain or whatever, and on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, would bring it into the, into the house of God, into the most holy place, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And there he would make atonement for the children of Israel for a whole year. Their sins would be atoned for. And he'd come back out, and the people could bring, uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Our sins are rolled forward for another year. That didn't mean they could go out and sin another year. That means means that their sins were taken care of because they were looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. The time is going to get away before I finish this. But let's look at the last one. We'll try to get this quickly. In verse 9, uh, verse 8 rather, And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, notice he says, Who will go for us? And it says, Then said I, Here I am, send me. After this experience of Isaiah, he not only uh, had an humbling confession, 
and a great salvation because he was purged and cleansed. But here is a definite commission. When he asked, when God asked, whom shall I send? In verse 9, he answers. And he said, go and tell... Uh, he said, here am I, send me. In verse 8. And then God tells him what this commission is. Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land, but it shall be uh, a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, green tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast for, uh, their leaves, so the holy seed thereof shall be the substance thereof. The holy seed shall be the substance thereof. He had a definite commission. On the divine side, he was divinely chosen. But on the human side, Isaiah was cheerfully willing. You know, you say, God has called me. That's one thing. But are you willing? Isaiah was willing. It takes both sides of it. God may call, and some people do not answer. But when God calls, and you have a divinely given call, and then you have a willing, cheerfully willing answer to that call, that it works together and the commission is given. And Isaiah goes forth with the commission that God gave him. And by the way, Isaiah wasn't promised converts. Wouldn't that be a hard thing? Preacher here, call to this church, say, here you are. Pastor, you're going out here to, to pastor to, to preach to people. But I'm not going to promise you any converts. Man, that'd be a hard road to take, wouldn't it? You just keep on preaching, keep on preaching. And he said, how long, Lord, am I to do this? And he says, Till the, look, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant. Just keep on till there's not anybody there. Keep on till there's no one around. And the houses without man. And the land be utterly desolate. You just keep on keeping on. I, I admire the spunk of Isaiah, don't you? Amen. And the staying power of Isaiah. And yet God promised him that there would be a remnant. In the last part, it says... But yet it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. In other words, he promises a return from the captivity, by the way, and he promises that he is waiting for uh, the return of God's uh, favor to the God's people, and that's what the last verse amounts to. And there would be a holy seed that would remain, a stem or a stock. When it says, whose substance is in them, that means the, the stock or the stem... You know, Job refers to the fact that if you cut a tree down, is it dead? He says, no, you better, you better watch out. It might sprout up again. There might be some, some foliage come up on it yet. I remember one time, and I'll close with this illustration, out on the farm in Oklahoma, and we go down there on the river, and we get a bunch of posts. We cut a bunch of posts out there and fence our little house in there where we're living on the farm. And lo and behold, one morning I looked out there and that corner post had limbs and leaves all over the thing. I mean, I put it in the ground and that post started growing, see. There's always a chance for the substance or for the tenth or for the return. And God promises that it's going to do some good finally. Just keep on keeping on. So I think we've covered somewhat of Isaiah chapter 6. We thank you for your presence and 
your kind attention, and I hope I didn't keep you too long. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer.